And I, I would say that that is the number one mistake that I feel is being made for the Lyme community. And this is just personal opinion, oh, yeah. but I think the number one mistake is that we're not addressing the whole person. Mm-hmm. We're not looking at all of the pieces to the puzzle, which it's oftentimes not just, just Lyme alone. It's a complex and Lyme just made it that much more complex and that much more difficult on the body. And so by addressing all of the pieces, we get a much, much better outcome for patients. Because obviously, I mean, here's an example, just a quick example. Congratulations, Lyme Fighter. Today you had the courage to open your eyes and face another day. Welcome to Lime Voice. This show's purpose is to help you put the puzzle pieces of Lime into place. Each episode is designed to inspire, educate, and encourage you on your Lime journey to wellness. Together we will fight. Together we will heal. Together we will live. Here are your hosts, Aaron and Sarah Sanchez. Wishing your doctors could communicate and come up with a cohesive plan specific to your medical needs and genetics? At Invita Medical Center, they offer a team-style approach, giving you the opportunity to heal. In addition to a commitment of providing radical love and care for their patients, they are strategically located in sunny Arizona because Arizona offers the best integrative medical laws in the country. Call today to speak with one of their patient care coordinators. You can find them online at Invita.com. Lime Voice thanks Invita Medical for the continued support. Please reach them at 1-866-830-4576. Welcome Lime Voice listeners where fighting is a mindset Healing consists of choices. And living is the outcome. This episode is with Invita Medical Center. I think this is going to be a really encouraging episode because what we've done is we've gathered a bunch of medical questions that a lot of you have had and given to us and really talked with Invita Medical, kind of just dissected some of these questions. And so I think it really will be encouraging for you guys and answer a lot of questions. Yeah, and the the number one question that I get is how did you heal from the neurological side? And I've said it from the get-go that they Invita has a neurological repair treatment program that they have in the middle of their treating of their plan and it just unlocked my brain. It was like a light switch mm. and all of a sudden I could spell, I could articulate, I could follow along and not lose my train of thought. So I've been wanting to talk to them about this, and it just took a lot of years to get it scheduled. (laughs) But there's other things. They're talking about the testing, and there are more improved tests coming on the market here within the next couple of years. So it's really this, I felt like it was just a really helpful conversation to see where things are headed within Lyme. Yeah. And, you know, one of the biggest complaints we hear about is brain fog and and brain fatigue and so i think this will be really encouraging that there is hope out there there is treatments available and you guys can benefit from these i say it in my blog posts all the time but i don't know if i say it here very much that people are healing in a wide variety of ways i see people healing from 
just homeopathy. I see people healing from orthomolecular medicine, which is just high doses of supplements and nutrients. I see people healing from juicing and coffee enemas. And people are healing in a variety of ways. It just seems to take a really long time and it's an expensive road to be on. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things we've done with Fight, Heal, Live, that whole statement is that is the base to all these different protocols. So whether it be supplements, whether it be home remedies or or whatever, it's that fight, heal, live attitude that really gets people past this. So I think this is going to be a great episode for you guys to listen to, to gather information, to be encouraged. And I hope you enjoy it. If you haven't already checked out Little Bite Big Trouble, you can find a link to that at limevoice.com or you can look it up on Amazon. I think it's a great little book. It's about Lime and Sarah's journey through Lime, written from a bird's eye view through birds. I think you guys, it's really well illustrated. That project took three years. It took a long time. Took a long time. <laughs> so took, I th- took longer than it should have. <laughs> yeah, good things usually do take longer <laughs> than they should. But it was worth it, and I think you guys will benefit from it. That's available for purchase under $20. I think you guys are really going to enjoy that. Uh, Also, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, just go to iTunes or Stitcher, hit the subscribe button, and if you're really feeling generous, you can leave us a review. And what that does is it helps others find us and it puts us higher up in the ranking so that the message of Lion Voice can go out there. And uh, thanks again for being with us and we hope you enjoy. Dr. Hummel, thank you so much for being here with us today and talking to our audience. Oh, you're welcome. Very happy to be here. Awesome. So I really have wanted to do this episode for about four years, and it just took a while to get around to it. But (laughs) it's one of the most frequently asked questions is how to get over the neurological issues. And when I was at Invita, which was Shea at the time, when I went through their IPA treatment, so their neurological repair treatment, which is now called IRAD, Insulin Receptor Antibiotic Delivery, it was so huge for me. It it truly felt like it just unlocked my brain each and every time I went through a treatment. And so can you just give us a broad overview of what that is? Well, pretty much what we're, we're talking about when we're doing this is we're really talking about delivering an antibiotic into the intracellularly, and then we're looking at doing it into the uh, the central nervous system, which is why, for your case, it was likely selected because of the neuroborreliosis that was a complication there. And so this is kind of a derivation off of what's called insulin potentiation therapy, which is basically using insulin and putting the body into a, a hypoglycemic state And by doing so, we make the cells uh, very hungry for glucose. And the same thing with the central nervous system. We make that uh, blood-brain barrier uh, more permeable uh, to glucose Hmm. because this is primarily the energy that your cells and the brain and everything need. And so that's that's really the the crux of it. So by making these things more, more permeable and putting you in that hypoglycemic state, we actually create a perfect uh, uh, way to deliver the antibiotic um, a little bit, uh, I'd say a little bit better than it would normally pass the blood-brain barrier and, and normally go intracellular. So we get a little bit more efficacy doing that. Hmm. 
And I know for me, I went through at least two or three weeks of treatment before they started the this specific therapy. Why do they do it in the middle of treatment? A lot of people that come and see us are really, really sick. Yeah. And, you know, the, one of the big things that you always worry about is that Herxheimer reaction, right? That Jarek right. Herxheimer reaction. And so what we try to do is just kind of clear out and get the immune system functioning and get the body, you know, improving in terms of overall health, you know, with the nutrients and things like that. And then we do the more, what I would call more invasive therapies like IRAD. Hmm. So do you guys hear from other professionals that antibiotics cannot cross the blood-brain barrier? No, no. Actually, that, that would be not true. Okay. They, they can cross the blood-brain barrier. In fact, uh, there are many professionals out there who use rocephin and uh, you know, some of these other IV antibiotics, and you know, they use them to cross the blood-brain barrier and, and with people with meningitis and things like that. The problem is we want to ensure the highest delivery of these antibiotics as possible. And especially since Lyme, we know Lyme hides all over the body and, and you know, Borrelia likes to go intracellular. And one of the ways that, that we, you know, we work with that, the Lyme, typical Lyme community would say, okay, well, we're going to give you a specific antibiotic that works a little bit better intracellularly, but the truth is, it just doesn't saturate it enough, and we have these pumps inside the cells called multiple drug-resistant pumps um, that will actually make it uh, difficult to really saturate intracellular with these, uh, these antibiotics. So we kind of use this therapy just to increase the efficacy. That's really what it is. It's, it's not that you can't have efficacy with the other therapies. It's that this one just has, in my opinion, greater efficacy. Hmm. And so for me, as I would go in there, one of the common questions that I get from people is they think that you kind of are induced into a coma. And <laughs> I'm constantly reassuring them that it's not that it's actually a very, it's not an odd experience at all. And you're sitting there and you're conscious the whole time. And, you know, it's definitely not a coma. But for me, one of the things that happened is instantly after years and years of losing my train of thought, not being able to articulate, I could articulate really well within just a couple of treatments. And my spelling improved, things that I had gradually lost over the years. Is that because the inflammation levels go down in your brain or what? what is that? Yeah. I mean, that's a that's actually exactly what's likely happening. I mean, what happens in the body whenever you have a long-term infection, especially with something like Borrelia, you know, and it goes into the nervous system, it starts to cause major kind of neurological damage. But not only that, it creates this uptick in an immune response, which is associated often with an inflammatory response. And so what happens is as you're able to clear out the, you know, all these antigens, all the, the infectious material and really decrease that burden, what you see is a substantial decrease in inflammation. And when the inflammation goes down, suddenly things start functioning better. You know, suddenly the, the nervous system is able to create the appropriate amount of neurotransmission and you feel like yourself again. It, yeah. It's like coming out of the fog for a lot of patients. That's exactly how they describe it. 
Hmm. You know, when I went out to Invita, I had actually been sick for 17 years. I didn't know, but I had actually had a bullseye rash. So once we kind of backtracked, it was easy to figure things out. But a lot of people know that they have had Lyme for a really long time and they've tried different treatments. And one of the things that happened for me is my husband is very dyslexic and has had dyslexia and different learning disabilities his whole life. The sicker I got, the more dyslexia type issues I had. Mm. And they were gone instantly when I went through those IPA treatments. And so just makes me wonder even for him and, you know, a lot of people who have Lyme, their kids have learning disabilities and their kids have dyslexia and a lot of other things. Are those related? Is that kind of like a simple form of your brain being inflamed and not processing things correctly? Yeah, that's that's actually to put it in the in the simplest manner that's exactly how I describe it because it is inflammation it's neuroinflammation and when you know we talk about a lot about autism and we talk a lot about um, you know just major kind of neurological disorders becoming more prevalent nowadays and we also know that at least from the CDC's viewpoint which is I think a gross underestimation they're saying there's 300,000 new cases of Lyme per year and and so I think what we're seeing is we're seeing these underlying infectious materials causing inflammation throughout the body. So it doesn't have to just happen in the joint because if you think about it, what's the common – when we think about the common Lyme symptom, we talk about joint inflammation and we talk about the bullseye rash. Those are two of the primary things everyone seems to understand. Yeah. But what they don't understand is that anytime this infection is in an area – in the central nervous system, you know, in the in a, a specific organ, you know, for example, the cardiovascular system in the heart, you get inflammation in those areas as well, because basically what happens is in a very simple, you know, way to think of it is your immune system comes in and it attacks the Lyme. And Lyme has all of these amazing, you know, adaptive mechanisms to work around uh, the immune system. It hides from it. It shoots off little flares. Like, I mean, it does all these things. And, uh, you know, that's a, a, a flares is not exactly what it's doing, but but <laughs> it does a havoc. lot. It does. It causes havoc. And, I mean, they call it antigen, you know, mimicking, and uh, they'll do actually antigen shedding and all. And that's what I call the flares. So basically what happens is they'll saturate an area with these little antigens and Lyme, the actual you know bacteria itself may be in a completely different area it had moved on because it has these little flagella it can move and so basically what happens is it leaves the area and now the area is very inflamed because the immune system thinks it's there and it's attacking the antigens that were shed from Lyme mm-hmm. and so it the way our immune system attacks it is it basically in you know kind of a grotesque thought is that it literally just throws up oxidation onto the area. And um, it tries to engulf these antigens, but it also puts basically hydrogen peroxide and these other very oxidative materials over your own cells and everything gets really inflamed. And you bring cytokines into the area and it just, it just, everything gets really ticked up in terms of inflammation. When that happens to the central nervous system, anytime you change the amount of sodium in the area, in other words, you're, you get swelling of cells, then you change the way that neurotransmission occurs. And not only that, your body's not focused on, you know, 
spitting out serotonin and dopamine and these things that would normally be there helping you with neurotransmission or GABA, right? That's another one, gamma aminobutyric acid. That's a, a inhibitory neurotransmitter that kind of slows down, you know, your thoughts. And so what happens is when you're inflamed and you're you're uh, not producing these inhibitory neurotransmitters, then you go into this almost neuroexcitatory state and people almost act like they're on too much adrenaline. And then over time, they just crash and it's it's like just a major level of fatigue. So anyway, that's that's kind of an overview of what I see happening in the in the uh, you know neurological system that leads to those type of disorders like dyslexia and you know um, autistic type symptoms and and things like that and I'm certainly not saying that's the only thing going on but infections right. are a big big component out there that unfortunately are not being addressed like they should be. Wow. Yeah. As you're just saying that, I'm like, yeah. I mean, anxiety is one of the huge horrendous symptoms because it's anxiety over you are actually dealing with life and death issues. And, you know, there's a lot of lack involved with chronic illnesses. And so there is a lot to be anxious about. But I know so many people who have never had issues with anxiety, myself included, who are off the charts about the littlest things, because their body can't cope with that anxiety. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's and that, what does a doctor do? When you go in, any physician that you go in and you say, I have anxiety, rather than treating the underlying cause, which could be, you know, this major um, infectious material being present and causing, you know, this neuroinflammation, instead they give you a benzodiazepine. So they replace the GABA because benzos act as a GABA agonist. And so they do this to basically slow down neurotransmission and you feel, oh, good, I'm kind of calm. But the problem is your body adapts around that and the cause was never addressed. Hmm. So. Wow. So one of the initial diagnoses that I had, obviously I had like chronic fatigue and chronic pain, fibromyalgia, but as more and more of my neurological issues started to surface, it was both a blessing and a curse. In a sense, like I had felt those neurological things happening internally for a number of years, and it wasn't until they started being external that other people could see them, and it made Mm -hmm. sense, you know, what I was talking about. But one of my early diagnoses was MS because I was losing the ability to walk and also my hands were curling in a ball real bad. And mm-hmm. I know that that's just a generic neurological thing. But for about a year and a half or two years, my little kids would say, why are, you, why are your hands in a ball? And I would just look at them and be like, I don't know. What is it about inflammation or neurological stuff that curls your hands in? Well, it's basically what it is, is anytime you have, and this is a very broad generalization, but right. I think this is, it's it's how, you know, we learned it in the beginning in medical school to help us understand it a little bit. But anytime you have generally bilateral, and it can be due to nerve root issues as well, but anytime you generally have a bilateral kind of tonicity of the muscles like that, hypertonicity, it's usually a central nervous system lesion. And so that's why they look at it and they say, oh, this is this is likely MS, meaning that your body is attacking your myelin sheath. Now, does that mean that's not what's happening? Absolutely not. That could actually be what's going on. It could be attacking the infection and in so doing, destroying portions of the myelin sheath. 
mm. which acts as kind of a conductive it, it helps it's like the what i describe it as is and probably not the best description but it does work as kind of the coating around our wires that allows that transmission to take place and and so what happens is yeah when you're really inflamed and you're getting uh, damage to the myelin sheath or to the central nervous system, these lesions can cause what we call hypertonicity of those muscles. So it's basically that it's firing constantly and it's not relaxing, right? It's not mm. stopping the transmission to allow that muscle to calm and relax. And that's that's probably the best way to describe it. But yeah, that's likely what was going on. So once you got the, the inflammation kind of knocked down and your immune system, you know, became not so dysregulated, then it was able to heal and you were able to start having normal neurotransmission. Yeah. Wow. It's so complex. It's just crazy what it, we always say it's unfathomable and it really is because it affects you on so many levels. Well, you know, I'll tell you something. I, it is extremely complicated in terms of, you know, just understanding all of the different aspects that could be going on. And I would say that that is the number one mistake that I feel is being made uh, for the Lyme community. And this is just personal opinion. Oh, yeah. But I think the number one mistake is that we're not addressing the whole person. We're not looking at all of the pieces to the puzzle, which it's oftentimes not just, just Lyme alone. It's a complex and Lyme just made it that much more complex and that much more difficult on the body. And so by addressing all of the pieces, we get a much, much better outcome for patients. Because obviously, I mean, here's an example, just a quick example. Yeah. Let's say uh, you're having all of these Lyme symptoms and you're, you're very, very ill. Well, there are people out there that literally have Lyme and don't have any symptoms with it. And you know, you know, we say, okay, well, they're, it's just smoldering in the body, and someday they're going to go through a major trauma or something, and that's the Lyme's just going to tick up, and then that's going to be where they start having symptoms. Well, that there's, I think that there's truth to that, because the reality of it is that we, you know, our bodies have been dealing with infectious material, you know, since the beginning of humanity, right. and and we can deal with it when we're in our immune system is functioning, you know, appropriately. And there's always a battle between the the bugs getting stronger and creating, you know, unique ways around our immune system and our immune system functioning well. But I think the reason that we're seeing so many cases nowadays where it's just getting worse and worse is not just because the prevalence of Lyme itself, it's also because well, very simply, we live in very poisonous environments. Yeah. We, we're being inundated by toxic chemicals all around us all the time. We're getting hit with, uh, with drug therapies that dysregulate our immune system. We're, you know, there's just so many avenues. We live in very stressful environments you know, nowadays. A lot of us are, very, are pushed beyond our limits. And, and so what ends up happening is we create a perfect environment for this bug to just take off and and destroy and cause a lot of really difficult problems in, in the human body. Wow. Yeah, and you're right. We unfortunately don't practice medicine in the sense of looking at someone as a whole person. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I, I just think that it's so much easier, and I, I understand it actually. It's what we do as human beings. We divide things up in order to, to comprehend them. 
And, you know, I'll tell you, if my, if my heart is not functioning appropriately, the first person I'm going to see is a cardiologist. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and so I, I do have high respect for people going into their prospective fields and really understanding it well. But I feel like, you know, if, if we could bring all of our knowledge together and really work as, as a team, you know, on a whole body perspective, I think we would get a lot more, you know, benefit for patients. And I think that's what we're doing here at Invita is we use everyone. I mean, we're, when we know there's a cardiovascular issue, we, we recognize our limitations and we say, okay, we have a great cardiologist who's Lyme literate. We're going to have you meet with them and talk to them. Um, we have a great, you know, uh, radiation oncologist who's amazing. So we just have all these great connections, and and we work together, and we kind of quarterback the the therapy through the patient. Yeah, and that was my experience as well. For so many years, I had been pushing. You know, I did not know anything about Lyme, but as far as fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue, I was just pushing my doctors like something is really wrong. Draw my blood again. Something's really wrong. And I got the very common, well, I mean, literally told, oh, well, you have too many kids. And I do have five kids, but we had them all on purpose and we wanted them. (laughs) And I was a very high functioning, I could be a mom and work at the same time. And that stress didn't ever cause me pain until I got sick. And I think that you bring up a really good point. There's a vast difference between how our medical system is set up to handle acute issues. And yes, if you have a heart attack, America is the place to be. But we haven't transferred that into the chronic areas of our healthcare. You guys have. (laughs) You guys have, because I was blown away when I got there. I was like, This is what I've been looking for all these years, because if I did have a specific issue, you guys really have a team of people who can target things. But that starts with looking at you as a whole person. Well, I'll tell you, one of the things that really drew me to Invita originally and has kept me here and why I love it so much is because, you know, we're always learning and we're always trying to perfect the treatments more and more because we recognize that there, I mean, even for example, we have an amazing success rate with, with Lyme patients, an amazing success rate. Since I've been here, I have seen so many people go home and just improve and improve and get better. But there's always this small percentage where, you know, we have done every therapy we know and the patient just is not getting the improvement. I mean, there's always some improvement. But just not getting to the level of that where where we'd like to see, and so we're constantly researching new therapies, new testing, and I'm telling you, I'm excited for what's coming here in the next uh, in the next year. It's going to change the the face of how Lyme is treated, in my opinion. So. Oh wow! Can you tell us? I know you guys have. Don't you have a research facility out of the country somewhere? Well, we have we have several facilities that we're working with, and I can't I can't go too deeply into it just because I want to make sure that everything's going the right direction, and we're still in research on a lot of these things. But one of the primary issues that we see, and this is just you know the best way to describe it, is the primary issue is the difficulty in actually getting that Lyme diagnosis, and mm-hmm. we're still using antiquated methods. We are still relying on Western blot and, you know, how the immune system responds to a bug that is constantly evading the immune system. Hmm. It's it's ridiculous. And we all understand, everyone who 
works with Lime knows that the way that we're testing for it is not a, a good testing system. And so they're always, I mean, we have a lot of great companies out they're working on better ways to test. But that's one thing that we've been really focused on. And, and I think you're going to see, and, you know, God willing, and, you know, knocking on wood and everything, that we're going to have some very novel testing methods to be able to really affirm that diagnosis and get people the proper treatment sooner, you know. Hmm. Which would make such a huge difference. Huge. I think so. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what you went through, right? I mean, they were they said, oh, you're, you have all these other things going on. And even if they do test for it, very often they're unwilling. Or if they do, they're using a lab that's only looking at, you know, a very set number of antigens. And they're not looking at all of these subspecies that could be present. And, and so we just end up with a lot of false negatives, yeah. a lot of false negatives. So, hmm. So do you think we're moving in the direction where I know Lyme has been compared a lot to AIDS and even polio in the sense of this, this being the epidemic of our era? Are we moving in the direction where we would have, have it manageable? Like, and again, I know I'm being very general and broad, but can we do for Lyme what they were able to do with AIDS? Like, it just doesn't seem to be that simple to me. Like, I can can anyone with Lyme ever hope to just take a pill and have a decent quality of life in the future? You know, I I hold hope for that. I hold hope for that. But I the problem is, I think that just like, you know, HIV and, and any infectious, like some of these infectious diseases, you know, there's a lot of research on, okay, how can we control the disease itself? And you can get, I think, some really significant benefit from these different treatments and, and from the research that's coming out. But ultimately, I think the problem is, and, uh, you know, I'll say that, kind of reiterate this, the real issue is that we live and and when I say toxic or you know poisonous environment, I mean that. I mean that we're we're our food, our water, our air, you know. And that's I mean that pretty much sums it up. So we just had all these all of these toxicities that are basically feeding, you know, basically creating a what I would describe a disrupted environment that allows for these infections to really take root. And so no pill is going to make up for, you know, the the amount of, of poison that we're really putting into ourselves right now. And and so in my opinion, what I what I think is that yes, I think that down the road, I think they will come up with some incredible novel therapies to treat Lyme. But the first step is being able to identify that it's even there. Hmm. You know, and then once it we can identify all the different different species and, you know, subspecies of Lyme and be able to know, okay, that's the infection that's, there is that infection in this patient. And then we are able to start focusing on, you know, the research to treat it very specifically right now. And, and you're very aware of this right now. It is a really invasive, extensive amount of treatment that takes place to really overcome the level of, of infection that can sometimes be present. And so, unfortunately, and this is talking about chronic Lyme, obviously, right. there are those patients who they don't really, you know, show the symptoms of it, even though they may have it. And then there are those patients that, you know, they had acute Lyme and it was treated right away and it and literally never came back. It just was gone. And so there, there are these, you know, avenues to consider as well. But ultimately, what it comes down to for me is that we can't really heal 
you know, any of the diseases fully in our society until as a whole we start treating the body as a whole and we start cleaning up all of the things that we put into it. <laughs> mm, yeah, and that's where it gets really complicated because I remember the learning curve and it had started before I ever got out to Invita. I had started reading the Gerson Protocol, which is the gist of juicing and coffee enemas to heal chronic fatigue. And then you guys also recommend two to three coffee enemas a day during treatment. And I just remember thinking like, there were so many layers of it. Like, okay, I can't drink tap water. Tap water has chlorine and fluoride in it. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then the pans that I use, I realized weren't good pans. And that, you know, it just kept going on and on for a number <laughs> of years. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, when does this end? Like <laughs> we're having to shed all this stuff. And it was a it was a somewhat painful process, but you're right. When you realize the levels of toxicity that exist in our lives in practically every product that we use, no wonder we're all struggling. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And it's it's heartbreaking because sometimes, you know, the body is an adaptive, amazing, you know, healing mechanism. And it can do things that are just, that seem like miracles to mm -hmm. us, you know, when, when they occur. And we, we rely on, I mean, as physicians, we are not you know, treating, you know, the, the disease in a sense. We're really helping the body be able to heal the disease. And one of my favorite, um, I guess, metaphors when I'm describing the, the overall or analogies, I guess, with what's going on is we're sending in missiles and the missiles are definitely uh, wiping out a good portion of that that population of, of Borrelia and, and the co-infections, which, you know, that's a big part too. Um, but ultimately, the only way that people heal and the only way they really get better is when the ground troops go in and clean it all up. Mm. And, and that's what your body has to do. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, I mean, HIV is a great example. You brought up an amazing example there because I can tell you that it doesn't matter if a person gets what we call a nosocomial infection, right? Basically, they, they get a common infection that's in the body anyway, right. and they have HIV. It's usually that infection that kills them. And guess what? We have plenty of antibiotics that normally would fight that infection. Hmm. But it's because the immune system is not functioning that it doesn't matter. You can hit that as long as you want with antibiotics. Eventually, the bug will adapt around the missiles. It'll learn to hide and, and infect how it needs to and not be affected by those missiles. And then, you know, the it'll ultimately, you know, overcome the human being. And so that's, that is what our goal is as a whole, is to, to make it so that, you know, the missiles do their best in terms of, of clearance, but ultimately the body has to, to do the healing. Hmm. That's a great analogy. That makes so much sense. For nearly two decades, Invita Medical Center has been leading the way with the latest in personalized treatment options designed for patients dealing with Lyme disease complex. At Invita Medical Center, they offer a team-style approach and the latest technology regarding treatment and testing at an unmatched, radical love and care environment for their patients. Call to speak to one of the patient care coordinators today to learn why hundreds of patients choose Invita Medical Center each year. You can find them online at Invita.com.
From the creators of Lime Voice and disappearing from society comes a brilliantly simple idea. But this time, it comes as a voice. Imagine a world in which birds can talk like people. You'll get a bird's eye view of life with Lyme disease, as one bird family must unite to overcome the obstacles of life with Lyme disease. Guaranteed to make you laugh and a cry. Written in a way that helps you articulate the losses you are experiencing as a household, while simultaneously empowering you to keep fighting. Little Bite, Big Trouble is available today at Amazon.com. So let me ask you this. A couple weeks ago, in one of the Lyme groups over in the UK, they, on one of their newspapers in the UK, it said that doctors, they were in the process of allowing doctors to not treat people who had been Googling their issues. (laughs) And, you know, there's different aspects of socialized medicine that are good and that are bad. But this was something that I dealt with from the get-go in the sense of, you know, here I am losing more and more quality of life as the years go on, and I'm just being told it's stress and anxiety and depression, none of which I had a history of, and in a sense being dismissed. I feel like they were doing the best they could with what they knew, but it really took me, my Googling and my researching kept me alive, and I know that it did for a lot of other patients, and if I had waited for one of my physicians to figure it out, I would have died. Because I was so close for I was so close in 2013. Tell me about the level of patients when you're you guys have a patient that comes in, I am assuming they have a massive amount of education, because that's what that's what I see is, by the time someone gets to a basically a crisis care clinic, like you guys are, they've had to learn so much. How do you guys handle that? And one of the things I felt was, you guys were the first you guys were the first people I talked to who were ahead of me in the sense of when I was explaining my symptoms you're like, "Yeah, yeah, we got that." <laughs> and so it was really relieving, but tell me about the education that people come to you with and then I've got a couple more questions. Okay. So most patients that come and see us are just like you, you state, very well educated when it comes to their symptoms and their disease state. And, you know, it's funny because I, I think tying this into what you were describing in terms of the the UK saying that they can turn away patients that are doing their own research, um, this, it's unbelievable. And that's, that's ridiculous. There is no better advocate for your care than you. You are the one that's living in the unique body that you have. Now, we understand things on a, you know, physiological perspective from a percentile basis, right? We look at it and we say, okay, 90% of the patients who have this type of physiology do well with this type of treatment. And that is the only way that we can really do good medicine. It's what they call evidence-based medicine. Hmm. And so the issue there, though, what happens is we take away the individualization and then the people who suffer are the ones that don't fall perfectly into 
those categories. Like, for example, the people that realize that they have Lyme and they're not just doing symptomatic suppression anymore. Yeah. Like, for example, taking the benzodiazepine for anxiety. So the of that situation is this. Highly encourage people to be their own advocates. And I can tell you a lot of what I've learned has been from the patients that I treat. Hmm. Basically, the way that I, I describe it, uh, what we do here, is we recognize that we're all human beings. And, you know, even though we're all very well educated in, in Lyme disease and in chronic infectious diseases and, you know, in cancer, which is primarily where we, we remain focused, we recognize our own limitations. And truthfully, it takes, I think, honestly, you have to be humble and know that, yes, this person that comes in likely has a really great understanding of what's going on with them. And so the goal is, at least for me, whenever I'm meeting with a patient, is to, one, be very, very prepared in terms of my understanding, which is, hey, here's a unique patient. Have you guys seen this before? And we talk about all of the different aspects as a group because you have several physicians working here. We have our our DO, we have the other, you know, physicians that are all working, you know, through Invita as well. And basically, we all discuss the the patient cases. And we talk about, you know, things that we don't, have you seen this? And how would you approach it? So we get kind of a multifaceted approach to the treatment. So when, when someone is surprised by how much we understand, how much we know, it's usually because, well, yeah, we see a lot of patients that are very advanced and in similar situations, but also we, you know, recognize our own limitations and we, uh, we rely on, you know, each other and, you know, really conferring and understanding deeply what's going on with each of our patients. So that is one of the things that we do that I feel is a a real plus. Yeah. In conclusion here, let me just ask you about insurance. And I I know that it's such a huge issue for a lot of people, especially people who are totally disabled, that a lot of clinics and a lot of effective practitioners don't take insurance. And I know there's a lot that goes into that on both sides. Do you see us moving in the direction where insurance ever will cover extensive effective treatment? Because honestly, it almost feels like we're going backwards in that regard. We, we kind of are going backwards in that regard, unfortunately. And I think the, the truth is it comes down to – really, it comes down to money. It's a, it's a – you know, it is definitely a monetary thing there. What happens is – the and this is just again my opinion on on that matter but what happens is we see that the insurance agencies are looking to maximize profit and still be able to support the the people that are in their insurance plan and there's a few ways that you do that you don't cover really expensive or extensive treatments and that's one way to do it mm-hmm. and you know you if you think about like Lyme Lyme is a very extensive treatment protocol. And so the same thing occurs with with cancer patients. I see that quite frequently where they're willing to cover the basic standard of care, but they're unwilling to cover the newer therapies coming out that are a higher, a better standard because everyone is looking to make profit off of it. So for example, the the, company that just created this new drug is charging $10,000 per treatment for this drug 
And the insurance companies are saying, well, we can't afford to pay for that. And because if, if we do that for enough patients, we won't make enough money. And ultimately, it's it's the bottom line is monetary. And that's one thing that I really, really love about being here is that, you know, we ultimately we have to make money, you know, to keep the business right. going. But one of the things that I, I really love about here is that the focus is is doing what's right for the patient and doing what is ethically right and still doing the best to balance the monetary side of things too. So it's not, the focus isn't just monetary. And I've seen it again and again where, you know, patients get the help they need despite the, you know, the monetary limitations that might be there. And so it's it's disheartening the way the insurance field is. And I do think that as soon as they come up with the pill, you know, the one pill and it's, and then it goes through, you know, the years of patent and then ends up being really inexpensive, then Then that's when, (laughs) that's when they'll cover it. That's exactly when we'll see it. And it's unfortunate that our insurance system is that way. It's kind of unfortunate that the, the system is set up that way. I think, if we were looking at things from a more preventative and uh, causative treatment approach, then the system would function a lot better. And if we had more people, you know, really in it for, you know, the, the right reasons rather than for monetary reasons, I think that we would have benefit there as well. But it's, it's ultimately what I tell people, I say this all the time, water runs downhill and the majority of patients you know, it takes a long time to get sick enough to say, okay, I'm going to do all of these things to get yeah. better. And so they want to choose the easiest path, which is take a pill to suppress the symptom. And then the same thing with the doctors. Hey, if I can see 30 patients in a day and bill at that and only have to follow an algorithm that says, you come in with this problem and I give you this, that's easy medicine. I don't have to think, I don't have to work hard, and I get paid well. And so everyone is looking to follow downhill medicine. Mm. And and the, the truth is that it is always harder to go uphill. And that's what you get here in Invita. That's what you get. You get people that are willing to make the trek with you uphill. And it's not easy. And it's very difficult. And you're going to hit snags. And you may not think you can make it up the next little you know, path. But ultimately, we're all here to help you get there. Hmm. So one of the things that I've sent, I, you know, I just see it so clearly now for me, it took so many years to figure it out. And so, you know, there's people all around us with Lyme and chronic fatigue, and especially people who cannot find a diagnosis. And for those who have a lot of neurological issues, I have just begged people to go out and do testing with you guys because it is so comprehensive and it when you need a clinical diagnosis for something you can't, oftentimes you can't get it from your primary physician and so I know that you guys do a a large amount of testing and then combine it for a clinical diagnosis but for people who can't get out to Invita to do testing what are the most accurate tests that you guys recommend at this point? Well, that's where we're really trying to change that. I wouldn't, I couldn't confidently say that any of the tests are really, really accurate. I mean, we like, we like using Igenix. 
you know, through their, their Western blot and the, uh, the I-spot tests and these different immunoblot kind of testing. They're decent, but again, they have their limitations. They're a good company, and I think if, if that's what you have access to, that's what you use. And, you know, as well as, you know, any sort of Lyme and co-infection polymerase chain reaction, they're not the the best again there's no there is no perfect testing right now which is yeah. part of the the main issue looking at cd57 is the you know the absolute cd57 gives us a really good idea of that particular natural killer cell and if you do have chronic lyme it's often low and that's based on a couple of studies that you know have shown that and, and in our own you know experience we've seen that and we look at just you know so we're looking at basically the immune system, how it's reacting, we're trying to catch how many bugs are present, and then ultimately really what Lyme, uh, the Lyme diagnosis is based on, and this is the reality of it due to the flawed testing, is it's based on the clinical diagnosis, and it's based on the the patient's symptoms, their history, and the cumulative knowledge that we can acquire from the testing. Hmm. So, okay. Yeah, I know that's such a hard, hard topic to handle because it's like, well, <laughs> it, you know, people are like, I can only afford to do X, you know, X dollars of testing. And you're like, okay, well, <laughs> you're probably going to need a lot more than that just to get going, which is unfortunate. But I think one of the best things, one of the best, <laughs> the best advice I ever got here in New Mexico was from a physician who's a friend and, you know, I was just going way downhill. I was blacking out and he said, I emailed him and I said, what would you do if this was your wife? Like, what would you do for her? And he said, get out of the state. That was his, it, you know, we were in New Mexico at the time and Mexico is a very, very poor state, but it, it was huge to, and I know not everybody has this option. And even for us to be at a place where we could operate outside our insurance, that to me was this huge thing. And I, I regret that it took me so long to realize I needed to go outside my insurance. I think in a sense, I naively thought that my insurance company was looking out for me in some way. I don't think that anymore. But being able to operate outside your insurance seems to be such a key factor. Yeah, that's un it's really sadly unfortunate that that is a, a key factor, but very often it's true. I mean, we see that people that are operating within insurance are operating within a very tight regulated bubble of what we call standard of care. And unfortunately, the standard of care, you know, my best example, my, my favorite example recently in the last few years was the huge uh, nutrition panel that was put together, the government panel. And basically everyone came in and, and all these scientists came in and said, here's the research. These are the new guidelines we need to be following in terms of putting out nutritional guidelines in the schools and you know to, to people. And so they gave all of this information from the research and from, you know, experience and, and knowledge that's been gained through empiricism, right? Hmm. And what ended up happening is they also had several people that have skin in the game, is the best way to describe it, <laughs> such as the food industry, many people in the food industry who basically said, no, we can't put out that guideline. This, you know, this is our evidence to show that that's not true. And what ended up happening is a compromise. 
And that's what you see with our current nutritional guidelines. It's a compromise between industry and research. And that is, and and unfortunately, industry oftentimes will fudge that research too, to a certain extent. And so what you'll see here is the same thing occurs, you know, with these insurance companies and the insurance system is, is that, you know, there's this interplay of standard of care that is based upon not only what is best for the patient, you know, from research a research perspective and from a clinical perspective, but also what is best monetarily for the system. And it's kind of not the best system in terms of getting people better. So that's why we work outside of it. Primarily, we work within and without, I'll say that. And the truth is we try to do the best that we can within it too, but even we have limitations. There are times where I know that what we could be doing for the patient is likely going to be the best thing that they could get. But because of the concern regarding litigation or concern regarding what is considered standard of care, we have to follow very specific guidelines. So we're all within the system that's kind of twisting what would be a perfect system, right? So that's that's the reality of it. But I will tell you that the way we have it set up is probably, at least in my opinion, based on my experience, which is, you know, I've seen a lot of clinics, I've seen a lot of ways people are working, and what these guys are doing here and what we're doing here is is what works. And you know, unfortunately, it doesn't fall within that standard of care realm in terms of insurance covering everything. Yeah. Well, I know we started this conversation by talking about <laughs> the neurological repair program, <laughs> but I greatly appreciate your professional side opinion on things. I just have two more questions. One is about mold, and then I want you to tell us even why you guys practice in Arizona and what Arizona allows. I think there's more freedom holistically. Is that accurate in Arizona? <laughs> Yeah, the, I will tell you, Arizona so far is one of the best states in terms of your ability to practice with a certain amount of freedom and not worry about, you know, your board coming down and saying you can't do this. Now, I want to I want to emphasize one thing that I I didn't get to earlier. I actually forgot to mention it is that we our ultimate goal as Adenvita and you know the owner and uh, you know kind of with his creative genius Dr. Prado Dino Prado his his goal and where he's guiding the company is towards changing the face of medicine everywhere and so you mentioned talking about what tests are we going to be able to run you know for these patients and what can we do now well we're not quite there yet but i promise you in the next couple of years the vision vision of Invita is to get into other doctors' offices mm. to make it so that it's standard and it's out there for everyone. Wow, that's so awesome. That's a, that's a big, big component here. And you know what? I hear that so much. Dr. Richard Horowitz spoke at the Living Well with Lyme Disease conference, and he's, as far as I know, not seeing patients anymore. He's training physicians. And Lori... Dennis, who's an author and psychotherapist, she is in the process of creating a program where she's training other therapists. And so you just you see this kind of like natural momentum of people who are excellent in their field, kind of having to take a step back and saying, okay, how do I maximize what I've learned? So that's awesome that you guys are doing that. Yeah, it's coming. And I I see, you know, some major major changes in the next couple of years to how Lyme is going to be, at least at least in terms of 
getting more effective treatments out there and more effective testing. Which would be huge. Um, there's going to be some big changes. but Awesome. So uh, go ahead. So let's let's end on mold. And more and more, man, I feel like four years ago it was barely mentioned. And now it's a daily conversation within blog pages and Facebook groups. And I've seen it firsthand. I have two friends specifically who have gone through extensive amounts of treatment. And both of them were not making a lot of progress. Ended up realizing they had mold remediating it, and then their healing just increased exponentially. Is mold almost like you talked about with AIDS, how the common cold can be something that kills someone? Is mold just another symptom of the fact that their immune system is so weakened? Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that mold in itself has an immune uh, system weakening effect. And that's where it's really very interesting. So this is a lot of where you're hearing a lot about the main focus on mold nowadays is coming from Dr. Richard Schumacher. And he is, I think, very highly of him, very well-researched, very intelligent man. And so he's been putting out this information for quite some time and making effective changes for a lot of people who have the, uh, sensitivities to mold. What happens is not everyone is as sensitive to molds, but everyone under certain conditions with mold types are not going to respond well. And so, for example, we have you know what we call black mold. Yeah. Right? And that black mold releases a particular type of mold toxin. And that toxin, so the difference between, just to get a little technical, the difference between a toxin and So toxicant is that the toxicant usually comes from environmental things, like, um, for example, like chemicals in our environment. And a toxin usually comes from a, a, a living something. And so when we're getting technical, that's the, if you have, you know, an environmental specialist or a physician that you're talking to, that's one of the big differences. But the the toxin that is produced by by these black moles, the trichothecene toxins, they will actually have a suppressive effect on particular aspects of the immune system. And same with uh, candidiasis, right, which is, you know, a yeast in, in that kind of fungal family. that, But basically what you have here is a particular type of can be produced. For example, gliotoxin, which is a little bit controversial, but I know that it is present and oftentimes seen with candidal. You know, and so basically uh, this will actually act to suppress the immune system. In fact, there's been studies that have uh, where they've literally taken some of the components, you know, for pharmaceutical studies and tested it as an immunosuppressant. And so when you're constantly bombarded with these these molds and these toxins, they have an immune dysregulating effect themselves. And it allows these other infectious material that would normally be able to you know, be held back by the immune system. For example, one of the common infections everyone seems to have is Epstein-Barr virus, right? Mono. Right. And that one is kept pretty much in check throughout our lives because our immune system takes care of it. But you see it reactivating again and coming back in patients who are chronically exposed to molds. And so mold is a big 
a big concern. And if you have a particular uh, human leukocyte antigen, you, know, uh, you may actually be more sensitive than others. And so, yes, I think mold is a really big concern. A good majority of Lyme patients that I've seen, I mean, think about the states that Lyme is most commonly in, it, you know, the main ones that the CDC primarily recognizes, even though it's much more than that. But you look at those states, a lot of them are very high moisture content, right? And yeah. thus high moldy environment. So you cause a suppressive or dysregulative effect on the immune function of the patient, and you end up with a worsening of Lyme etiology as well. Hmm. Dr. Hummel, thank you so much. That was a very enlightening conversation, and I had a ton of questions. <laughs> thank you for shedding some light <laughs> no, on No, I appreciate it. I, I, I like talking about a medicine, and I you know love geeking out. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, thank you so well, much. You're very I welcome. Really, and really it was a appreciate your time. You. Yeah. Wishing your doctors could communicate and come up with a cohesive plan specific to your medical needs and genetics? At Invita Medical Center, they offer a team style approach, giving you the opportunity to heal. In addition to a commitment of providing radical love and care for their patients, they are strategically located in sunny Arizona because Arizona offers the best integrative medical laws in the country. Call today to speak with one of their patient care coordinators. You can find them online at Invita.com. Disease is contrary to life. Therefore, wherever disease exists, life must also fight to exist. Good job fighting, Lyme fighters. Keep it up. We'll see you next time. Lime Voice contains general information about medical conditions and treatments. The information is not advice and should not be treated as such. Okay, Lincoln? Okay. The medical information on Lime Voice is provided as is without any representations, warranties, expressed or implied. Okay? Okay. Lime Voice makes no representations or warranties in relation to the medical information on this podcast. You must not rely on the information on this podcast as an alternative to medical advice from your doctor or other professional health care provider. If you have any specific questions about your medical matter, you should consult your doctor or other professional health care provider. And for you, you consult your parents, okay? Okay. If you think you may be suffering from any medical condition, you should seek immediate medical attention. You should never delay seeking medical advice, disregard medical advice, or discontinue medical treatment because of information on this podcast. Got it, Lincoln? Got it.